Bible and join me in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. That's where we're going to be jumping in this morning. I just want to welcome you and say, hey, we're so glad you're here at FBC. My name is Matt, pastor here, and we are just so glad that you are with us. Again, uh, we have these four core commitments that we talk about a lot. Worship, connect, grow, and go. I love that this morning we were able to celebrate that go piece and these new missions partners, the Aldersons. A little fun fact, James was in our wedding when Amber and I got married. He was a groomsman. I know. So we go way back. We love the Aldersons. They're doing amazing work. And hey, a big thank you to you uh, and your generosity, because it's your giving, your generosity, that allows our church to support missionaries throughout the world. So part of our budget, again, is these missions partners where every month we're sending uh, money to support their work. Uh, That's only possible because of your giving, your generosity. uh, So thank you, truly. And of course, the Aldersons, thank you as well. Uh, This morning, we also have an opportunity to read the scriptures together, to jump into the word. And that itself is an act of worship where we say, Lord, would you speak? Lord, we want to shape our lives in a way that pleases you. And so we're jumping into Acts chapter 7. As we've been in a series here in Acts for the better part of this year, right, just kind of taking our time walking through the book. We've been in chapter 7 now for, I think this is week number 6 or so. And um, as we get ready to do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we love you. We are so grateful, just so grateful to be gathered as a church family to sing and pray and now look to your word. And Lord, uh, we just come in humility, and we just, we just ask, Lord, for your help. Help us understand what we read. Would you open our eyes and ears by the power of your Spirit? God, would you uh, convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Would you teach us and shape us and do all that you want to do here in this place? We pray this, uh, Father, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, I often wonder what it would be like to face death or torture because of my commitment to Jesus. I don't know if that's a normal thought pattern. or If, that, if you all wonder that as well, maybe as a pastor, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about what would it be like uh, to face such persecution for the kingdom and because I'm a follower of Jesus. You read throughout church history, right, and you see that it's not uncommon for followers of Jesus to face persecution, uh, for Christians in the early centuries to be fed to lions or impaled uh, or crucified upside down because they would not bow the knee to Caesar. And they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, instead they declared Jesus is Lord. Maybe you heard the story of Polycarp, a man in the second century who in his 80s went to his death. He was burned alive because he was a follower of Jesus. Uh, He was actually discipled by the Apostle John, right? So Apostle John followed Jesus, uh, and then John discipled Polycarp. And later in the second century, Polycarp went to his death. And all he had to do, again, the authorities were like giving him an out. They were trying to make it so he wouldn't have to face death and execution. And they said, all you have to do, Polycarp, is just uh, say Caesar is Lord and take a little pinch of incense in honor to his statue and we'll let you go. It's simple. You can get out of it. And maybe you know Polycarp's stalwart response. Famously, he said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he went to his death. 
Now, I read these accounts, and I don't know about you, but I often wonder then, man, if the heat was, was turned up on me and I was in such a situation, would I be able to remain faithful to Jesus? Because I don't like pain or discomfort. Uh, I don't even like to go camping. And so if I were to end a situation like this, I mean, would I be able to stay faithful to Jesus? We see this really jump off the page, this question in Acts chapter 7, because we see Stephen facing the council that is preparing to kill him. He's the first martyr of the church. We're going to learn a lot this morning about a scenario like this. Just a little bit of context in case you haven't been with us. We've been studying the book of Acts in chapter 7 for about, again, five weeks now. For five weeks before this, we saw how Stephen, an apostle in the first century, doing ministry, telling everybody about Jesus uh, in, in powerful ways, but the religious leaders of his day didn't like Stephen, and they didn't like the gospel, and they were threatened by the message of Jesus. And they said, we got to get rid of this guy. And so they seize him, arrest him, cook up some false charges against him, bring him before the Sanhedrin. And so he's been on trial for his life before the high court of Israel. And this is the same court, the same council that has condemned Jesus to death. Now Stephen finds himself, and they basically say, hey, uh, what do you have to say for yourself, Stephen? And he goes on this long, extended survey of the Old Testament trying to tell them, hey guys, I want you to see how the message of Jesus actually fits in to the message that God has been telling all along. And so look back at Abraham and look back at Joseph and look back at Moses and look at the prophets. And he goes this whole long story for five weeks we've been looking at it until he lands the plane. Now, humor me just for a moment, introverts, I'm sorry, but hey, turn to someone next to you and just, could you share something that you remember from chapter 7 so far? Anything from the past few weeks? If you haven't been with us, uh, just say, sorry, we weren't here, I don't know. But just share something with someone around you about that you remember. Go ahead, can you do that now? cut some of you off there. Some of you I'm going to relieve you as we continue on. Uh, good. Hey, it's good to refresh our memory a little bit. Again, he's, he goes through this long Old Testament survey, this long monologue trying to help them see how the message of Jesus and the movement of Jesus makes sense in light of all that they've seen. But notice then where we find ourselves in verse 54. Okay, this is now present moment, verse 54. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, Heard what he had said. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And so... so 
the council members before whom Stephen is on trial, they're furious, they're enraged, they're, they're gnashing their teeth. I mean, that's a, like a classic biblical picture of expressing anger and anguish. And then in verse 57, it, it leads to the place where they cover their ears and yell really loud like a toddler and, just, ah, and they rush him and they seize him and they drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. They're killing him. He's been on trial, notice, and we don't even reach like an official verdict. You know, we, we don't get uh, a formal official sentencing. We really just have mob violence here. At the end, they're just so enraged. They don't deliver the word, hey, here's your sentencing. Here's what's going to happen. They just charge at him, take him outside the city, and begin to kill him. I mean, what has got them so worked up? Gnashing their teeth. I mean, men, we can be so emotional. And so we go, ah, here they go. Remember what Stephen just said. This is like one thing that sets him off. Verse 51. This was kind of like his closing word. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. They're talking about Jesus. You murdered Jesus. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. Man, you guys are telling me that I'm a lawbreaker. You guys are the ones who have broken the law. You've murdered the righteous one who came to save us. And the whole speech, really, we saw that, hey, there's this pattern in history, this pattern in Scripture of God raising up a rescuer, a deliverer, a hero, and yet the people would resist and reject the one that God raised up. And he's saying, hey, it happened with Joseph, and it happened with Moses, and it happened with the prophets, and now it's happening again with Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. He's the hero of the story. He's the rescuer, and you rejected him and killed him on a cross. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And notice in the last straw, what really sets them off, after their gnashing of teeth, they're angry, they're furious, then Stephen says this, he's full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and then he lets them know about that. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. So what really sets them off even more is Stephen sharing this vision of heaven, truly. He's given this gift of being able to see God in that moment, seeing God in his glory and Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And he refers to him as the Son of Man. Did you notice that? Some of us have heard that uh, title before. The Son of Man, is, it's really one we see most often in the Gospels. Jesus refers to himself that way. It's kind of like his favorite little nickname for himself. The Son of Man. Uh, we only see that phrase outside of the Gospels actually three times, twice in the book of Revelation and once here. Stephen refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. That's a reference uh, from Daniel 7. Okay, It's an Old Testament connection. I want you to see the verses just so you can read it for yourselves and see what he's claiming. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, this prophetic book in the, in the Old Testament, it says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And here it is, verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the Son of Man is this Old Testament uh, title that was pointing forward really to the Messiah, one who would come uh, with the very authority and glory and power, sovereign power of God, one who is worthy of worship, one who had an everlasting dominion and kingdom, an unending kingdom. And Jesus referred to himself in this way, and that really outraged his opponents. They're saying, you can't take that title for yourself, claiming to be this son of man, claiming to have the very authority and power and presence and dominion of God himself. Who do you think you are? And now Stephen is doing the same thing. He's saying, hey, this Jesus that I've been talking about, he was right. He is the son of man. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one at the right hand of the Father in glory. He's the king with everlasting dominion. He's the one that you need to bow your knee to and worship. But for them, they say, whoa, this is blasphemy. This is a man claiming to be God and equal with the Father. And so Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. Why? Because he's preaching about Jesus. Uh, my pastor friend Scott from Hawaii put it this way. He said, when you shine the light of the gospel, expect heat. Because notice, there's a line in the sand that's drawn. Right? There's this unmistakable dividing line. And this is at the center, uh, this is the controversy, this is the issue between the early church and the Jews who would not believe in Jesus. It was, what do you say about Jesus? That's the line in the sand. That's the unmistakable dividing line between the early church and their Jewish peers. It's a claim about Jesus. The early church declared Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is God Himself. Jesus is the Savior of the world, one with the Father, in glory now with the Father. And the council said, no, we don't agree. And they rejected Jesus. They actually found that claim quite offensive, and it created a massive chasm. And it's that same chasm, realize, it's that same chasm, that same dividing line that exists today. Is those who look to Jesus and say, he is uh, the king of glory, the savior of the world, God himself with an everlasting dominion. And then there are those who say, no, he's not. He's a human teacher, or he didn't exist, or he's just a good guy, or uh, whatever. You see, that same dividing line exists today. And so if you want to know, like sometimes you wonder, how do we evaluate or make sense of like other worldviews, other world religions? Like where do we start to think through 
all of that. The best place to start is simply the question, first asking the question, with any worldview, religion, philosophy, is what do they say about Jesus? Let's start there. What do they say about Jesus? Do they believe that Jesus is who he says he is? If yes, great. <laughs> if not, problem. Okay, Because we bow our knee to Jesus. That's what it comes down to. And with this, I want you to see then, just, just notice, that the gospel message proclaiming Jesus is inherently, it's inherently offensive and problematic. Do you see that? Like the message of Jesus, it naturally, on its own, offends people and bothers people. Now, we can add offense to the gospel ourselves by being unkind or foolish or sinful or unloving or whatever. We can make things harder for people to receive Jesus. But even if we remove all that, man, and we love people well, and we're kind and respectful and gracious and patient and hospitable and every uh, virtuous uh, approach you could imagine, even then, the nature of the gospel is still offensive to our world. Realize, don't get me wrong, God loves you. God loves all people. He sent his son to save the world. God is for you. God wants you to, to flourish. He wants you to find life in him. He wants to see you forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. He wants to just lavish his love upon you as a father, upon his children, absolutely. But realize at the same time, the gospel has teeth. It, it cuts... <laughs> Because it claims that Jesus is Lord. And there's no other that we are to bow to. It proclaims Jesus is Lord. And so we have to repent and bow our knee to him. There's a God in heaven, right? And, and you're not him. And I'm not him. And we have to surrender to the one who's in charge. He's in charge. We're not. The gospel says, hey, you're not self-sufficient. You don't have everything you need in yourself to be okay. You're a sinner that, that needs a Savior. And the gospel says, hey, often you're, you're wrong. Even some, some deeply held convictions that you might have about X, Y, or Z might be wrong if they're not in line with Jesus. So the gospel is just called to repent. All authority and dominion and power and glory is given to Jesus. And so if we're building our life on anything else, any ability, religion or worldview or philosophy or person or conviction, and it's not centered on Jesus, we're building our life on sand. <clears throat> Jesus divides the world into two camps, those who have trusted in him and are following him and those who aren't, those who have life in him and those who are dead in sin. And this isn't like crusty Baptist preacher getting crotchety up here, okay? This is the Word of God showing that there is this division that necessarily comes with the gospel. And look again at, at what camp the council falls into. Again, verse 57. At this, they covered their ears to this claim that Jesus is in glory with the Father, and they're yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rush at him, and they go and kill him. Again, these actions that seem more like the approach of a toddler than the elders of a community. And Stephen's charge to them is that, hey, you guys are resisting the Holy Spirit. By rejecting Jesus, you're resisting the Spirit of God. 
Now, that reminds us of a passage in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus makes this claim about a sin that will not be forgiven. Some of you guys know this one. Mark chapter 3, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Any, remember this verse? Anyone ever been kind of like scared of this verse? You're like, oh my, like, yeah. If you grew up in church, you're like, what does that mean? Like, did I have, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And you can't be forgiven if you do that? Like, does that mean if I like say something dumb in college about God? Like, I, I can't be forgiven? Like, have I done this? Could I do this? What, you know, natural question when you read a verse like that. If you want to know what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit looks like, uh, look at Acts chapter 7. Because what's going on in Acts chapter 7? Stephen says, hey, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. They're, they're resisting this call to faith in Jesus. They're refusing to surrender to Jesus. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this persistent, ongoing refusal to put your faith in Jesus. And it's the sin that won't be forgiven because someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit by resisting Him will never turn to Him to ask for forgiveness. Do you see? It's not that you've done something so bad that, that even if you come and ask for forgiveness, God will say, no, no. It's that the very nature of it, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is you can continue in your unrepentant ways, not desiring to turn and trust in Jesus, not responding to the invitation of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It's not forgiven because someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit has cut themselves off from the only avenue of forgiveness. If you refuse the only name under heaven by which you would be saved, what else is left? And so, uh, hopefully it's encouraging to anyone in church who's been like, oh my word, like, have I done this? I think I might have done this. Like, I said something silly back a few years ago. I don't know, was that this? Um, if you have a soft heart and, and a desire to follow Jesus and trust in Him, uh, that's an indication that you are not walking in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Do You see, if you're worried about it, or if you're actually saying, I want to follow Jesus, that's an indication. You don't have to worry about this one. So be, so be encouraged, Hopefully. And look to the Lord Jesus. But what the Sanhedrin does is they reject the Lord. They resist the Holy Spirit. The light shines, but they respond with heat instead of humility, with hatred and violence and a public execution. So the heat is turned up, which brings us back to the question we started with this morning, right? How would, how would I respond in such a situation. If the heat was turned up uh, on me as a follower of Jesus, there was pressure put on me, persecution coming my way because of my commitment to Jesus, how would I respond? I think there's a few encouraging uh, parts of this passage that'll help us. Like if you've wondered the same, how could I maybe stand up to such persecution? Or if I were to ever find myself in this place, what could I do? Um, there's a few clues from the text that are going to help us think of how to respond. The first glimpse of this we get with Stephen. We've already read these verses, but verse 54, look at it again. Again, the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. They're furious, gnashing their teeth. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, looked up to heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So, first helpful piece. Uh, when the heat is turned up, what does Stephen do? He looks up. Right? The heat is turned up, and he looks up. He looks up to heaven, and he sees God in his glory. And he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. When you look up, a few things are going to happen. First, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. When you look up, you are reminded who God is. And that is going to put everything else into perspective in your life. Stephen looks up and he sees who God is. Jesus at the right hand of the Father, seeing him in his glory, it puts everything in perspective. It changes everything. He sees how big and weighty and worthy and amazing and glorious God is. Like the the word uh, for glory in the Hebrew, uh, kavod, literally means heavy, heaviness, weightiness. So he sees the the heaviness or the weightiness of God, how big and awesome and significant and amazing God is. Like we talked about last week, do you remember last week if you were here with us, uh, that a small God creates big problems? Like if in your heart God is small and not that big of a deal, that's going to lead to big problems in your life. Because when God is small, uh, your fear is big. And when, when God is small, your fear of man is big. And when God is small, your people-pleasing tendencies are big. And when God is small, your potential to compromise is big. There's an old book, another one, we talked about a few last week, but there's another one that unpacks this called When People Are Big and God is Small. And it gets at the, the heart of this, that, again, when God is small in our minds and in our hearts, then people are big and situations are big and fears are big and it leads to all kinds of anxiety and compromise and worry and stress and, and so on. And it's not just, about, like, it, it's about, you know, those fears and people-pleasing and so on, but really this gets at the, in the depths of our hearts, our soul satisfaction and contentment. And for us, like, what does it mean to be living the good life? What makes us content? What allows us to rest? I think this is part of the problem about, again, why do we think so many of us are not content with our lives? So many in our world, so many of us even who go to church often lack deep joy and contentment in our lives. This is why, this is part of why we we will seek out um, substances or unhealthy relationships or or pornography or we, this is why we have to have control in every situation This is why we can be, especially men sometimes, uh, just needy, needy. We need to be affirmed. We need to be recognized. We need to be listened to. We need validation. I need to make every situation about me. I need to somehow connect this to me and to see what this says or does for me. I need to be the center of the story. I need people to listen to me talk, so I'm not going to ask any questions about them because I just want to talk. This is why we're selfish. This is why we often don't love our wives the way that we should. This is why we're not as willing to sacrifice for our kids. Often, it's at, at the heart of it, we have not been gripped by the glory of God. We've not been captivated with a big, big vision and picture of who God is, a soul-satisfying picture of who 
God is. Because if God himself, think about it, if God himself is my treasure, and he is my joy, and he is the one who anchors my hope and my satisfaction, and he fills my heart like no one and nothing else can, if that's true, then I don't have to be so restless, and I don't have to be so needy, and I don't have to make everything about me, and I don't have to live in fear. I can be set free from this bondage to self in my ways because God has set me free. Then I can lay down my life for the good of other people. Because that's what he's done for me. Do you see if you have a big picture of God, it just sets you free? If you truly are captivated by his glory and goodness? Because realize, whatever's biggest in your heart, it's going to win. Whatever you, de- whatever you treasure the most, whatever is most important, whatever's biggest in your heart is going to win. Think about it. What's, what's a bigger deal to you? Like having the perfect physique and physical fitness or having the extra piece of cake. For me, it's the cake, okay? I'm taking the cake. It's bigger. It's more important. It's more valuable. It's more enjoyable. It's more life-giving for me. Or what's, what's bigger in your heart? The desire to, like, train for uh, the race or the test or run the half marathon or the desire to have a lot more free time to sit on the couch and be with your friends and read a good book and stay indoors, right? What's, for me, it's, it's that one. What's bigger in your heart? It's going to win out. What's, what's bigger in your heart? A desire for holiness? A desire to be like Jesus? A desire to please your Father? Or a desire for lust or greed or money or sin of whatever kind? What's bigger in your heart? For Stephen, uh, preserving your life? Extending your life by a few years here on earth? Or being faithful to Jesus? For Stephen, he clearly has made his choice. So my prayer, friends, as, as your pastor, is that, that we would look up to heaven and see the glory of God. And that you would have this a big vision of God in your heart. And that the, the defining reality of our lives, individually and our lives as a church, is we know and serve the God of heaven. And that his son, Jesus, is our Savior, and he is our treasure. Many of you know the, the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Beautiful words. If you don't know, it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We have to look up. And that, by the way, that's what church is for. I mean, we, we, we gather, we encourage one another, we pray for another, one another, we connect, we grow, uh, but we gather to worship, to have our eyes lifted up. We need that reminder every week, don't we? Because we get so like, beat up and discouraged by life. We need to come in and we need to sing and look to God and, and hear the word of God and be reminded what is true. That's why when we miss church, it actually is it's a big deal because we don't have that opportunity uh, to be encouraged and edified and, and lifted, our eyes lifted to the Lord. This is why we need songs that declare a big God, a glorious God, a big Jesus. This is why we need sermons that preach a big Jesus and a glorious God. So if I'm ever up here preaching a sermon and Jesus isn't a big deal, come up and slap me in the name of Jesus, okay? Please. 
Say, Pastor, give us Jesus. We need to see the Lord Jesus exalted in his glory because that changes us. It transforms us. It puts everything else into perspective. So when you look up, you're reminded who God is. Also, when you look up, you're reminded whose you are. And I checked on Google. I'm pretty sure that's the accurate way to say whose in this scenario, okay? One involves an apostrophe. This one doesn't. I think it's right. You can check me on it. Pretty sure. You're reminded whose you are. And here's what I mean by that. Look at the text again. Verse 57. They cover their ears. They're yelling. They rush at him. They drag him out of the city. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to get back to Saul in the weeks ahead. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Look at what he prays. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As Stephen is being stoned, he looks up and prays. And it sounds very familiar, remember, to what something Jesus says. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit as he faces his death. So in Stephen's prayer, you notice he's reminded to whom he belongs. My spirit, my life, Lord, is ultimately held in your hands. Even in death. Even beyond fear grave, Lord, I can rest safe and secure because my life and my spirit is held in your hands. I belong to you. We, we have a short um, book we use around the dinner table most nights, not every night, but a lot of nights, uh, called the New City Catechism. Many of you have it. We've given it out here before. Um, a catechism is just an ancient Christian tool. It's a set of questions and answers that helps children or people new to the faith to learn basic doctrine and beliefs of the faith. And so every night we, or again, when we do it, we'll read the question and see if the kids can know the answer. And if we do it enough, they start to uh, memorize the answers. And uh, there's actually, even with the New City Catechism, there's an app and little songs that go with it, and it's a lot of fun. Anyways, the first question of that catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? And so we'll say, Zoe, Sheppy, what is our only hope in life and death? And, and the answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. And it's really cute hearing a little two-year-old say that. That we are not our own, but belong to God. Because what is our hope in life or death? It's that we belong to God. Our lives are held in his hands. In life or death, no matter what we face, in this life or beyond the grave, if we are in Christ, our own, uh, we are in him. We belong to him. We're not our own. We're not the, uh, the masters of our own eternity. We're not the one who have to, has to sustain our own lives and our future and direction. We belong to him. And you see a bit of this in verse 60 as well. If you zoom, zoom past to verse 60 real quick, he says, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then he said, when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen dies, like he's dead, dead, dead. Um, but the text says he fell asleep. And that's, if you see in the scripture sometimes, a common Christian euphemism for death. Because it reminds us of the reality that in Christ we'll wake up. In Christ, there's resurrection life. Though we die, we don't stay dead forever. Like Jesus was raised, so we too, those who put their faith in him, are, are resurrected and face eternal life with God and his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And so even in death, there's this hope 
I belong to the Lord, and I'm really just going to sleep now, <laughs> and I'm going to wake up in glory with the Lord. That's how Stephen and the martyrs were able to face death. They were able to say, hey, this life isn't all there is. And so I'm going to say faithful to Jesus and remember the hope of the resurrection. And lastly, when you look up, not only are you reminded who God is and whose you are, you're reminded of the gospel. Stephen remains faithful to Jesus, but notice he's able to have this profound love in his heart for his enemies, those who are killing him. Look at his last prayer in verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like to those killing him, he's praying for their forgiveness, just like Jesus, his Lord, had. Right? Sounds familiar again. The words of Jesus. He cries out essentially the same thing. Even in death, he holds out hope of repentance and forgiveness for his murderers. Where could such a response come from? I mean, how could we possibly have a heart? Because, I mean, when... When we're offended or hurt or wounded or slandered, our impulse often is to seek vengeance. We're hurt, so we want them to hurt as well. And so how can we possibly transform that into this cry of forgiveness uh, that they would not have this sin held against them? It's only in the gospel. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that the Lord Jesus uh, was pierced by the ones that he came to save. And so the Lord wants us to share his heart. Wishing that none should perish. Wishing that even those who persecute the church would turn and trust in Christ. But again, we have to remember the gospel. Saying this is how God has treated me. I didn't deserve my salvation or earn my salvation. Or like God didn't you know, choose me because I was like so nice and cleaned up and it was real easy for him to bring me into his family. No, the gospel wasn't while we were still sinners and we were dead and we were running the opposite of, uh, direction. And we were rebels. That's when God loved us and saved us. And so if God has been so gracious and patient with me, oh Lord, that you would help me be so gracious and patient with those who wronged me as well. So friends, when the heat is turned up, we need to look up. Let's pray together. Father, many of us are here this morning and we're hurting or discouraged or weary. This week has been hard. We have questions about the present or the future. Many of us doubt. Many of us maybe are wondering where you are. So, Lord, uh, would you lift our eyes to you? Would you help us look up? Would you see your glory and see how good you are and see all that you have done for us in Christ? Would you change our hearts? Would you comfort us in this moment? Thank you for a chance to worship together. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's a good word.